Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 730 with Dennis Bagnaris. You know, how do you become the wolf you want to be? And it all resonates with what, what, what you feed that wolf, right? It's the wolf you feed that becomes the leader in the group. So if you feed your wolf positivity, light, uh, uh, and championing something that's for the greater good of the community, that wolf will be your alpha. But if you feed the wolf that resonates in a darkness or resonates in uh, uh, terror as control or uh, violence, then that wolf is in control and that wolf leads your pack. So it's just it just depends on what you feed. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurant Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt. And you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. Margin Edge is the only restaurant management system to combine automatic invoice processing with POS and accounting integrations. This improves financial performance, visibility, and efficiency. Their own CEO owns two restaurants, and he personally has felt the impact of COVID-19. And as a result, Margin Edge has decided the best way to support their network is by giving their full platform free for new customers until September. To learn more, go to me.marginedge.com dot com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable. Let me tell you about a little green book that will change your life if you're anything like me and your strengths are with people, not numbers. It's called QuickBooks for Restaurants, a bookkeeping and accounting guide by Zach Weiner. This is the back office restaurant accounting guide you've been searching for, and trust me, it will change your life. Ultimately, Zach shows owners and operators how to create the accurate financials and reportings that will enable them to make better informed, data-driven decisions to learn more and to get a copy of Zach's book, head to ZachWeiner.com slash unstoppable. That's Z-A-C-W-E-I-N-E-R.com slash unstoppable. And if you use that link, my listeners will save 50% off a one-on-one consulting call. But you gotta use that link or use promotional code don't stop. What up, unstoppable? So before I let you know what we got going on today, just a quick reminder that Toast POS is one of our sponsors and you have to use our link if you want to get those incentives. And it's really important that you that your first line of contact, your first point of contact with Toast is through that link because if they see that you came in, it could have been a Google search, that you came in through any other portal, they're going to assume that it wasn't Restaurant Unstoppable that turned you on to them. So you have to pause Restaurant Unstoppable right now. Head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable if you're interested in up to $2,000 worth of incentives. And I'm sorry if I'm over communicating this, but it's that important. We want to make sure you're getting these incentives and getting the most out of our deal with them. So today we have our first of nine interviews 
in New Orleans. Uh, we have Dennis Bagaris on the show with Liberty's Kitchen. And uh, we did nine interviews in five days out in New Orleans. We were hustling hard. And uh, in the, today's chat uh, with Dennis, we talk about feeding the wolf that you want to be. Uh, our our obligation to share what we know with the future generations of leaders. When it comes to financial and legal advice, make sure you have somebody separate from whatever entity you're doing business with that has your best your best interest in mind. Uh, giving people a clean slate when they come to work for you. Uh, we get into understanding in, in that in the early days that people don't know how to do their job, and it's your responsibility to, to help them through those early tough days. And they're their struggle with getting the job done says more about you than it does about them. How people don't quit jobs, they actually quit people. And I, it's so important to give people this the space they need to grow. And then lastly, we get into a lot of conversation around systemic racism, uh, really just listening as to you know what what is systemic racism? How did we get into this situation? And what do you need to keep in the back of your mind when you're working with people who might be uh, victims of systemic racism and how to have an open mind and how to consider all things before making a snap judgment? It's a really great episode. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Dennis Bagneris. Dennis, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am definitely feeling unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, I love it. So in 2008, Janet Davis founded Liberty's Kitchen. Her vision was to create a place where youth or young adults who had been neglected or criminalized could come for a hot meal, a job opportunity, and a support system. Fast forward 12 years since its inception, we're sitting with Liberty's Kitchen's CEO and longest standing employee, I should add, Dennis Bagneris. And at that time, or since that time, Liberty's Kitchen has evolved into a workforce development training program, which functions as a social enterprise dedicated to transforming the lives of the opportunity and vulnerable youth population of New Orleans, Louisiana, by providing them with the support to develop self-sustainability uh, through a intensive one-year life skills curriculum and employability skills training program set in a culinary environment. Man, I'm so excited for what you guys are doing, and I, I cannot <laughs> wait to make an example of you and what you're doing for your city. But before we dive into your story and Liberty's Kitchen story, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Well, if anybody's received an email from me or spoken to me long enough in a room, it's hard for me to uh, stay away from the phrase that I always use, it takes a village. Yes. You know, most of us are familiar with the African proverb, but I, I usually try to correlate it to the restaurant industry and the importance of uh, community, uh, support of communities, specifically in people of color. Yeah. And the thing is, we're, we're hardwired to be tribal. It, it takes a village, and we're meant to be in a village. We, ex we thrive in the village setting. We thrive in a, a a, a tribe we need it to be happy it's part of our, our our genetic makeup so why don't we think of it that way more often i'm curious do you have any thoughts as to why i just don't think to your point that we recognize it as yeah. really as we normally do uh to your point we're all tribal we all we all seek the affirmation and support and uh guidance of a group we all seek the elder we all seek our peers uh we all are in some capacity interested in and uh, teaching our young to be like us to, to take our place uh i think along the way uh we haven't necessarily devalued it, but we haven't necessarily given it the identity. Uh, what we notice on the population that we serve, the young people, uh, they will find it. And we know this. They will seek it out. And 
our intention is to be a positive force or a positive uh, representation of what tribal or uh, community can can stand for as opposed to what we know are the negative influences out there. I mean, all of us, there there are tremendous negative influences around uh, the, the opportunity or idea of being tribal or within community. And we just want to hopefully resonate it with some positivity so that that's an, an opportunity to spark and, and, and grow. I love it, man. And um, just listening to you talk, like this, like this idea of like tribalism and like they, they say, and there's this book out there, uh, Sapiens, uh, Brief History of Humankind. Hmm. And they, they like fast forward through like the evolution of humans and they break it down to a, the cognitive revolution, the, um, I can't remember the one that started 10, like the agricultural revolution mm-hmm. and the scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. The thing is that like we've been, they, they think we've been what we are as far as homo sapien goes for at least 200,000 years, right? Mm-hmm. And we've evolved and it, for the next uh, 190,000 years after that until 10,000 years ago wasn't until we came together and started living in like societies and big communities. But before that, all that time, like we were being hardwired to the, have that tribalness about us. And we don't lose that in 10,000 years. Like that's deep within our DNA. So what we're saying is like literal, like it's not mm-hmm. just like figurative. It's very literal. Right. Um, and that idea of like negativity and positivity, like, like there's going to be like whichever is greater is going to be the one that wins. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of this, this native American. <laughs> I have a lot of proverbs. I yeah. apologize, but drop them on you, us, you've man. probably heard the story before. Please. Right. But this, there's two wolves in a pack. Right. And it's, it's, uh, uh, one, one wolf survives because, uh, he, he, uh, he enjoys, uh, the community. He enjoys light. He enjoys laughter. He enjoys love. One wolf survives because he, uh, he feeds on hate and uh he he uh in violence and in the hunt and uh eventually you know these these two become the alphas of the group and one has to lead the tribe mm. and it's this how do you make that decision you know how do you become the wolf you want to be and it all resonates with what, what what you feed that wolf right it's the wolf you feed mm. that becomes the leader in the group so if you feed your wolf positivity light uh uh and championing something that's for the greater good of the community that wolf will be your alpha but if you feed the wolf that resonates in a darkness or resonates in uh uh terror as control or uh violence then that wolf is in control and that wolf leads your pack so yeah. it's just it just depends on what you feed and say your wolf pack has like 15 wolves in it right um which the the overall the arc and the culture of that pack is going to be which leader prevails right so exactly. like if you have you know nine wolves in that pack they're all positive you're going to be a positive pack but if it's in the other direction so that's why i think it's so important that we imprint ourselves in the next generation to make sure that we stay positive right right um awesome way to get this thing started man um and let's just start with your story like how did you find yourself in even on liberty kitchen liberty's kitchen uh radar team, the, 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 the start yeah yeah it's, for it's 11, uh, or eight years now <laughs> it's a wild journey man my my background is it's very uh, renaissance, so to speak. I'm all over the map. But uh, I graduated with a fine fine arts degree. You know, my first time in college came out. I graduated from Xavier University, fine arts degree. Uh, with some some minor attributes towards business, but really more towards uh, communication. Because my, my idea was I was going to go into acting or public speaking or something of that nature. And uh, uh, my wife uh, got a fine arts uh, degree as well and she wanted to get a master's and then from there i went on to theater and directing and then uh did a little acting here and there did some stage performance did some some film and those things were really great uh for me but i noticed like between the ebbs and flows of my life when i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do 
the one thing that resonated, the through line for me has always been community service and activism. And uh, I always wanted to teach and inform. I wanted to, to your to an earlier point, uh, provide um, examples or experiences around positive outcomes and positive opportunities. Not because I think that populations aren't aware of it or um, those most in need uh, aren't aware of it, but they don't necessarily know how to access it. You know, there's a difference, right, when you talk about gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. So that was important for me, and I wanted to make sure that people understood access to better opportunities and better lives for themselves. And I would work with youth, I would work with art, uh, all types of things in the community trying to Figure out just different ways for uh, to help people do better. Uh, I where, do you, the, where do you think you got this 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 desire to to serve to make people want to do better? Where did that come from? It's ingrained. I mean, I have a very strong family unit, um, <laughs> a, lo- a very large loving family. Um, my my grand both my grandmothers were uh, instrumental in instilling us this this opportunity for our idea of of uh, community, like. Um, I'm, I'm one of those types of people. I, I used to see my cousins, like full extended cousins of family, like every weekend because somebody was having a cookout or a barbecue or a pool party. And, you know, it was all positive. Like nobody at this po- at these gatherings was drunk. Everybody cooked together, whatever the meals were going to be. We all planned, uh, what the music was going to be or who, who got invited. And, and, you know, sense of community is something that's been instilled in me since yeah. I was born. And, you know, I, I come from, very active and engaging people who don't don't really stay quiet. They're alphas. I yeah. come from a long line of alphas who recognize when something's not working. You have to speak up to make change. And then uh, my parents, my my individual parents, like my mother, has been a very strong woman since the day I was born. Taught me that I was capable of so much greatness. Mm. You know, before I even knew myself, uh, my father led uh, a life that was something to look up to. You know, he's he's literally in the Louisiana history books, you know, uh, yeah. as the, the first African-American president pro temp of the Louisiana Senate, you know, so he's, he's uh, made bills, he's created law, he's changed policy to help affect, you know, community, advocate for those in need and then done just tremendous things. Yeah. So, and it's not every day family. I get to, to research my, my guest's dad, but you have the same name as your dad. Yeah. And I got a little confused in my research and I was like, wow, we're speaking to a judge today, Casey. Um, but that <laughs> yeah. was your father. But I mean, even your, even in researching your father, like you're saying, like it was very clear that he had a desire and ambition to, to, to make things right, to, to advocate and to, to be a voice. Um, how yeah. has that influenced you? I mean, you, you're already kind of alluding to it, but like, do you feel like, 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 like you're almost like taking the torch and like, like the, the torch is being passed to you? I, I would say absolutely. Nice. I mean, like I said, my, my, my grandparents, grandmothers both make, made a difference in the ways that they knew how my parents made a difference in the ways that they knew how and instilled in us, uh, you know, nothing was hidden. Nothing was kept from us. Just this opportunity to, to be better, do better. And, and I think the the biggest thing I take away from, my parents and some other mentors that I've had in my life uh, is just that something that we instill here in our organization is that it's one thing to fully develop yourself, like to read, to learn, uh, to get experience on, on, on different levels to make yourself better. Um, but for some people, that's it, right? It's just this, this continuous, uh, I don't know, experimentation of self-appreciation or self-development, and it doesn't go any further than that. Uh, for some other people, it becomes this other thing where it's like it's it's not complete until you shared it mm. with somebody and started them on their pathway or their journey. And then then 
you begin to complete a process and it's become kind of full circle. Uh, most of my mentors in my family have always felt the same. It's like, it's one thing to be able to do it, but when you can teach somebody else to do it, that's why we're here. That's what we're here to do to make the world a better that's place. That's why we're here, man. Like that's exactly. And we're, we, we're, we, we, we sing that sentiment just like you are. And I think it is our obligation that once we learn these things the like you mentioned, like the, the, the cycle isn't complete until you've paid it forward. Right? right. And our mission and your mission is to, to pay it forward to the next generation, to share these, these, these skills, the knowledge we need to be successful. And it's, I think that's our unique selling proposition, our unique, like, Humanity, humanity's unique selling proposition is the, the ability to compound not just evolutionary traits and habits that we pick up, but like story and knowledge and like to expedite the process and really evolve faster because we can compound and share spoken word and, and like knowledge. It's so powerful once we realize and recognize it. Yeah, and that reverberates back to the, the, the tribal, yeah, you know, metaphor that we used earlier and how it's, you know, it's a, culturally has been it's a, a very strong deal. mechanism for strong community and teaching. So, you went to Xavier University. Um, you graduate. What, what were you doing straight out of, out of college? Uh, out of college, a few things. Like I said, I worked in the banking industry for a while. Uh, learned a lot about, again, I thought it was an opportunity to help people. Yeah. <laughs> very, rec- very soon recognized that for-profit, particularly banking, uh, may look like it's for the customer on the surface. But when you get really ingrained in it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a profit. It's a matrix that, yeah. that the more you delve into, the, the, the more you regret about it. And even though I try to try to make sense of it, uh, I usually joke if, if, you ever, if you've ever seen the movie The, uh, the Incredibles by Pixar Disney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a part at the beginning of the movie where Rob Parr is, is, is since he knows the system, he's helping this woman uh, with her filing and what she needs to do so she doesn't get yeah. railroaded by the system. That was me. Okay. That was me every day. And it, it began to get so absurd. Ob- all encompassing that it was it was really frustrating and i needed to take a take a leave from like the for-profit life so who are you working with specifically when you're in that system when you're when you're helping these protect these people from getting railroaded like you said i think that's what you said right yeah, yeah i mean ideally who i'm working for is, is the financial institution at the time okay uh, but for me i was i was committed uh to wanting to be there to provide service for the people who needed it most. And were they looking for loans or what? All of it. Like okay. I said, by the time I left, I was on my way to an almost administrative branch manager and almost potentially manager. So, I mean, I was, I was involved in loans, property management, new accounts, CDs, IRAs, all of it. What is some advice you can give us on that, that like financial front of people that you worked with reflecting back? How many years ago was this when you were in this part of your life? Oh, wow. Many, many moons ago. I'd say almost 20. 20, almost 20 years ago. Fucking back at the time of your life. um, What were some of the things that you saw people doing that you still see people making mistakes to this day that you just shake your head at that you can just give shine some light on that financial front? Again, it goes back to my earlier point, too, about gatekeeping and access to information. I think that because of just how we're taught, you know, banking industry is the trusted moniker of, of how to manage finances. I think it's probably good if I if I had to go back or I had to give anybody advice and I still do. It's it's probably in your best interest to get outside advice. Somebody you literally either have access to to tell you about finances or how to um, uh, manage your finances appropriately because the banks that's not their interest. The bank's interest is managing your finances to their benefit. Mm. Uh, If trying to find some outside counsel away from banks where they're paid or they're advised to help you 
with your financial future is a, is a totally different animal. So, okay, C- CPA would be an example yeah. of somebody you're talking yeah. about. And are there services that, like LegalZoom might be another example yeah. of somebody you could reach yeah. out to? What I else mean, comes to your mind? Uh, they're different. Like I said, legal CPAs who are doing pro, pro bono work, uh, you'd have to talk to you. There are churches who, who are able to bring these types of opportunities to the table. There's community groups and resources, some schools. Uh, some of us are fortunate enough to have these people in our families. Uh, I would consult with them. Don't, don't believe obviously that the bank is like the, the ultimate, uh, knowledge bearer because your accounts yeah. are in that space. And also remember banks work for you. I think a lot of times people, lose sight of that as they do in any position where somebody represents themselves as the authoritarian or the more informed, uh, specifically like the, um, the elder population, uh, who I think a lot of times gets, get taken advantage of by banks, uh, need to, need to, they need to be supported and assisted by somebody who can help them, uh, become more knowledgeable of their own accounts and, and help them so they have a plan. That's great advice. Um, so that became overwhelming for you because you saw the reality of the, the industry yeah. and you decided you needed some space away from it. I mean, for-profit became soul-crushing. You know, yeah. you hit at a lot of people who are committed their lives to non-profit, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's uh, and you and I, I think you and I talked about it on the phone. I, I think I wish more businesses would run like, I mean, you hear the, you hear the vice versa. Like, I wish more non-profits would run like a business. But the truth is, I wish more businesses yes. actually adopted a lot of what's happening in nonprofit right now. I, I, I would agree too. Yeah, I think there's I think a shift. Yeah, there's there's there's, there's been, definitely been a blurring of the lines. I know when I came on, you know, because I have for profit background and for profit experiences, for profit experience, and we had a, a very very well established board of directors. Uh, this organization from the ground up really ran itself as, as kind of a small business venture. Uh, that was one thing Janet kind of really prided herself on. Also coming from the for-profit industry and big oil and her background, uh, she wanted to definitely bring uh, a profit, a for-profit sensibility to the table because at her time, almost 10 years ago when she was starting up a nonprofit, nonprofits, you know, 10 years ago had this whole idea of being run like mom and pops, right? Mm-hmm. They were like, uh, they don't really do a really good job accounting for their money. They don't have really a business plan in place. They're just basically shelters uh, that get funded by philanthropy to kind of do good things but not really make a tremendous impact. Yeah, I want to get into that for sure. I yeah. want to start pulling back the layers. But before we start talking about Liberty's Kitchen, any other stops along your way before getting here? Uh, areas where you really evolved as a, a man, uh, an adult in today's society that we should hover over? Because I like to say behind every great restaurant is a great person. So I want to get a sense of who you are and how you got shaped into this position you're in now. That's a long story. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm typically a very self-reflective person. I've I've always been. I think it has something to do with the. I don't know if I understood uh, you for self selective. What did you say? Re- reflective. Okay, thank I'm you. sorry. I've, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at myself, not necessarily making my, trying to make myself better, but trying to get a better idea of who I am as a person and how I'm here to make my impact and and how how do I present opportunities to support those what what I know what I can what I can bring to community. Um, I mean everything from education to the different jobs that I've held. I've always learned something differently from myself. Uh, for-profit was not for me because it was very controlled and soul-crushing, and I, and I felt like it, commerce as a whole, uh, the capitalistic system was designed to take advantage of people, whereas non-profit was the excelsior, or the, the polar opposite, whereas uh, money was something you, you kind of needed to, to do this work, but the work in and of itself was Ill, uh, uh, good-intentioned mm-hmm. and was supposed to put a positive spin and make an impact on whatever the case may be. And finding a way to make those two things meld was was also kind of in me. I, I enjoyed um, 
the for-profit structure of things to become better and to provide more and to grow and develop. But I also liked uh, everything around community and teaching and instilling and supporting. So trying to find a space where those two kind of gelled together was, was how I kind of fell into Liberty's Kitchen, to okay. be quite, quite honest. So what was it? Uh, actually, this is a great time uh, to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Listen, Margin Edge people are restaurant people. They want to keep it simple. Heck, their own CEO even owns two restaurants. And to acknowledge the hardship on our industry, Margin Edge is offering their full platform free for new customers until September. To learn more, go to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable. So what the heck is Margin Edge anyway? Margin Edge is the only restaurant management system to combine automatic invoice processing with POS and accounting integrations. This improves financial performance, visibility, and efficiency. It all starts with snapping a photo of your invoice with your smartphone. Margin Edge takes it from there. Every line item, every handwritten note is captured. Margin Edge then integrates with your POS, so each day you know everything you bought and everything you sold. Margin Edge creates a rolling p with drill down capability and it flows effortlessly to your accounting system of choice. Additionally, Margin Edge does data entry of all your invoices, updates pricing on your inventory sheets, that's food and beverage, updates your ordering sheets, keeps your recipes, prep and plated prices up to date with real time kitchen recipe viewer alerts you if prices of key ingredients have jumped determines theoretical food and beverage costs slash usage versus actual usage eliminates cutting and mailing checks you'll pay vendors straight through the platform so what are you waiting for head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable uh, so we're back, and you were just starting to tell us about how you landed, um, you got on Liberty Kitchen's radar, how you found this opportunity. So you came on board in 2011, mm-hmm. correct? But they started in 2008, so you weren't here for the first three years. I was so, not. So what was the story? Like, wh- like if, if I was sitting across from um, the, Janet right now, she was telling the story of how she started this. What would she say? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, it's funny. We joke about this story all the time. Um, so when I when I came, I had moved back to New Orleans because my wife and I weren't here for Katrina. Uh, around the time when Liberty Station got started, my wife and I were actually in Pennsylvania where I got my second degree uh, that I had mentioned. And my wife was getting her master's degree. We okay. Were, uh, and we'd moved back. Uh, when Katrina happened, we wanted to give New Orleans about a year. but And we had just had a baby. And we wanted to come back and be part of what New Orleans was going to become because there was all this buzzword and branding around uh, what will the new New Orleans look like. And... Uh, we wanted to come back and be part of reestablishing some of what old New Orleans was before yeah, it got yeah. kind of waylaid and, and tossed to the side because there's a lot of great things that we both resonated Preserve. with. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we moved back and we tried to find opportunities. It was, I was in education for a while. I was in uh, acting for a while. Yeah. Um, all those things far and few and in between uh, with trying to also raise a family. Uh, so I was looking for something more steady and something that, that kind of honed all of my resume into one space. Uh, and when I met with uh, this organization, um, I had my initial interview. And I think that at the time, well, I know at the time, Janet was in some some level of transition. Like she was hiring for a, a, a front of house manager for her restaurant space, a small restaurant space. But I think she was also in, her, in the back of her mind, she was transitioning 
how the organization could develop into something different, something new, something next, the next level of her, mm-hmm. her dream. And when I interviewed, uh, it was funny. They looked at me and they thought my resume was, was uh, a bit too extensive for the job, yet I had no front of house experience. Like, until back when I was like in high school and I was working at like Cafe Du Monde. Okay. Something like that. And, uh, but they appreciated meeting me. They appreciated the, the uh, interaction. And uh, I didn't think, and I, I thought I didn't get the job because it's you know, that typical overqualified thing. Yeah. But turns out I, I got a phone call later that day and said, hey, you know what? Our executive director wants to meet you. She just wants to, she wants to actually come in and meet you. You don't necessarily qualify for the job that we currently have, but we, we told her about you and she thinks that there's a space that she can, we may be able to create that speaks to your resume. So I said, okay. Uh, came in and uh, I'll never forget it. I walked in. It was a coffee shop and uh, I see the two guys that I interviewed with a, a person of color and a white guy. Uh, and there was this woman sitting there, a uh, tall white woman from Texas. And I said, here we go again. Another white lady who wants to save, you know, the young black people of New Orleans. So I'm, I'm walking right back into the same thing that I see every time. And literally within 20 minutes of the conversation with this woman, she said she was impressed with my resume. She had heard my name uh, from some people that she knew. Um, she heard about the initial uh interview that I had about what I could bring to the table to make Liberty's Kitchen better and she told me her story about why she started Liberty's Kitchen and this white woman from Texas was using words like racial bias racism she wasn't she wasn't skirting around it she wasn't calling it classism and she wasn't calling it uh she wasn't denying the fact that uh, systemic racism was real Mm -hmm. and and again this is 10 years ago yeah when people weren't talking about systemic racism because it was made up you yeah. know which now we know to be very much real or we talk about it if it's very much tangent uh but she was talking about all, all of it and just there was an honesty and almost a frustration in her and i was like you know we weren't you weren't using the term woke at the time but you know she got it yeah and i clicked and connected with this woman i was like holy crap this woman is actually not only saying that she knows what's wrong, but she also knows that she's not the person to fix it. Mm. And she wants more dynamic people of color to come to the space and, and diversify her space and, and make it a place where more young people of color feel comfortable, feel connected. And she thought I could bring that to the to the table. So why is that important, uh, a keystone to, to making improvements, having a, a person of color take the lead? I think it's like anything, it's understanding. Uh, you know, I advocate, I advocate all day long for the rights and equalities of different types of people, LGBT communities as well, but I would never get on stage yeah. and speak about what laws need to change to hold up that community because I don't know mm. directly what that community suffers or deals with uh, every day. And it's not my role. My role is to hear them and, and support any injustices that they may come across as support. I think it's the same thing when you talk about people of color. Um, I think all too often, especially as as our young people don't see our examples of success. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many of our young people, uh, especially young people of color, they aren't they are not given access to go beyond their means. So they don't they don't know more than their neighborhood or their surroundings or their their circles. And then the rest of what they have to use to fill in the gap is controlled by media. It's controlled by perception of others who are not like them or people of color, and you need a caveat, you need something to cancel out that narrative so you can show to a young person of color, hey, look, 
I know that there's this idea that you are just a young criminal out of the gate. You're lazy. You're, you have no interest in being employed. All you want to do is smoke weed all day, all of the, whatever the ridiculous scenarios are. And as a white person, you can go in a room and say, that's not all black people. And Stonewall, it's like, how would you know? You don't know where we come from. You don't know what we do. And even though I don't pretend to resonate with all of the young people that come through this program um, and what they've had to deal with, I do understand how the the lens of the world captures them. And I understand how they're affected by that. I was lucky. I had a lot of means growing up. I had, again, as I mentioned, a very supportive, uh, familial community and, and people who supported me. But because I know that, I can speak to how it works in the black community. And I can speak to people who don't have it and hopefully find opportunities from them to understand how to either navigate around it or find substitutions for it, uh, but to, to be able to deal with it on the same level that they see it or they deal with it. And I think that's why it's important. Okay. So it sounds like early in the early days, Liberty's Kitchen, the, the mission, and it's still to this day, was to, to, to give young people a perspective to say that you're not defined by what society says you might be. You're defined by whatever you're, you know, there is opportunity, the same opportunity out there. And so what was Liberty trying to do? Like, how exactly, what was the approach going to be back then? Is it still the same case today? Are you still taking the same approach? Has it evolved at all? I think it has evolved on a more of a microcosm level. Uh, when Janet really started it, you know, it was, she had in her, in her own, uh, and this is another thing that related her to me, like she, she told her story from her point of view and why it motivated her into a lot of this work. You know, she had studied a lot about sociology. She had seen a lot of racism growing up, having, you know, growing up in Midland, Texas, you know, in the, in the early 50s and 60s. I mean, she had seen racism. She yeah. knew it was real. There was no doubt about it. Uh, but when she had gotten to college and she learned and she had studied and, and she read up, she rec- recognized that it was a, it was something that the world was going through, especially America mm-hmm. was going through. And she had experienced it in her own, uh, not, not racism per se, but she knew what it was to be the, the remainder, the outlier, because again, she was a woman. And in the sixties in Midland, Texas, trying to be a, 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 a woman in big oil in a big company, you know, it was, it was like mad men. You know what I'm saying? You, you weren't, your, your opinions weren't really taken. Uh, your leadership was, was looked at as hollow uh, because again, you're a woman and then a man is better than you. So she spoke to inequality in that level. So while she understood inequality and understood that inequality also existed on a racial level, she knew she wasn't the person. She used what she had, her authority, her power, her, her network to create a space to um, break that down or, or to, to, to get in its way. And she knew she needed to, to arm it with the right people. And she was beginning to, to make those choices. I wasn't the only black person she hired, but she definitely resonated with the fact that I was a person of color who resonated with what she wanted this organization to be. And, and that is a beacon of understanding that when she started it, she understood that young black youth were not getting a fair shake, mm. particularly young black youth coming out of a system, coming out of the judicial system. Because when she started this, it was all about Young people who were coming out of court, who were criminalized to begin with, marginalized, disenfranchised for whatever reason. It wasn't their fault per se. And you look at the, the, the factors, the outlying factors that lead a lot of 
young people of color into those systems. So it's, it's actually a denial of other things that you know cause that. It's the pipeline of prison. If you ever, if you've ever can we heard. get into it? I feel like it's worth getting into it because yeah, of all that's yeah. going on right now. It, it's, yeah, like let's try to understand. Like let, let's use this opportunity to and the echoing that's happening in society right now is just listen. Just try to understand why we got into the situation. So explain right. it. Like what what was happening that a, a, a resource like Liberty's Kitchen needed to exist. I mean, at the time, and it still is the fact uh, of the case that New Orleans is one of the most, um, in, in, uh, largely by percentage, one of the most in, heavily incarcerated cities in all of the country. I think Louisiana, Louisiana leads the pack as, as far as the states, but New Orleans as a city is, is one of the most uh, uh, incarcerating uh, cities in, in all of the, the world, from what wow. I understand. And uh, the marginal disparities of, of who is in prison is, is I believe it's like upwards of, I have to check my research, but it's upwards of 85% black. Okay. Uh, it may be, maybe between uh, 60 or 75, but it's still a disparately yeah. high number. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's dangerous and reckless to believe that that percentage of the population is, is, is criminal at best. So what's happening, right? Well, why is that the case? And, and it, it points to the fact that the system is unjust. I mean, mm-hmm. you can see it now when you look at uh, things to, to, to Facebook posts and, and, and media that when you see uh, the sentencing that's happening for young people of color versus what's happening for young white males, it's, it's hugely disparate and it's not the same at all. And uh, black people uh, by far are getting harsher and more readily sentencing sentencings that will incarcerate them for longer periods of time. And it's it's punitive. It's extremely punitive and excessive. And a lot of times, it's 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 not uh, it's not warranted. I mean, so many of our young people say they get picked up for things that they they didn't do. Cases get thrown out. They they get arrested. They get pulled over, stopped on the side. Things that we're talking about seeing now yeah. every day. Yeah, uh, is our populations is what they what they exist in. And when you're embedded in a system like that, or when you're um, constantly being uh berated by a system like that you don't feel like you're anything but you never get ahead either you're always like you're trying to make progress you get pushed back and then then you have a criminal record and how much easier is going to be to to get out of that that cycle you know right um so absolutely so so when you came on 2011 uh what was going on like what what evolution was liberty's kitchen going through and and while you're you're sharing the story something that we kind of already alluded to once already the idea that um, this might be a nonprofit operation we're, we're reflecting on right mm-hmm. now. And most of my listeners are for-profit organizations, but I feel like we can take the idea of having a, a values-driven organization, a purpose-driven organization, and when you can use a lot of what we're going to discuss today. Um, and I think that this idea of paying it forward and taking care of the youth and, and, and existing to serve the people that you employ – is something that can that, that echoes across all industries and all, uh, I guess, whatever tax idea, identification system right. you're using. You know, like regardless, it, it applies. So just keep that in the back of your mind as you're yeah, listening. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what like what was going on when you came on board? Well, I think Jana wanted to to have a broader reach, yeah. and she wanted to figure out how to get to young people before they got in the system. Like she identified, like they're trapped already when they get to juvenile justice. There's, there's there's, there's no means or no at no point in that system that's that's rehabilitative. It's it's punitive, and when it when it affects young people at a juvenile level, they they become 
on almost a career track to recidivize back into that space. And, and that's because they don't know anything other than what got them in there in the first place. And if there's no supportive systems outside of once they are quote unquote rehabilitated or have gone through some, some stay in those spaces, uh, then why do we expect anything different from this population? So Janet wanted to be a space where, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at where we were previously located when we opened up our space, right? The criminal course building was on Tulane Avenue, which is, which is in the city of New Orleans. Uh, we were catty corner from that space because Janet literally wanted our building to be a beacon for young people coming out of that space or coming out of that building. So they had eyesight to be able to just say, Hey, look, once you come out of this space, come to us mm. and we will provide you or begin to have a conversation with you about what your options really look like. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where it started when Janet, when Janet started, but she wanted to go outside of the, the idea. She wanted to, to broaden the scope of who we served. Okay. And I, I resonated with that because I was like, why are we waiting for them to get into the system? We should be getting to them before. Exactly. Yeah. So what's it look like? I mean, I don't know if it's changed since then, but when you find this youth, and it's not just African Americans, it's not just Latinos, it's everybody, right? It's it's not just yeah. diverse people. It's I've seen, I saw kids with all shades that have gone through your program. So just keep that in the back of my mind. So you guys aren't going after a specific race of people. Like it's open to the entire city, right? It is, but yeah. what does it say that ninety five percent of our students are African American? Yeah. Right? right. Yeah. No. Good point for sure. Um, but so, what does it look like when this when this kid comes to you? Um, you know, from whatever their story was beforehand, they come to you. What's the first thing you're trying to do? Like, what's that conversation look like? Uh, that's easy. I mean, uh, our value system is, is is resonating from a place of support and love, and I think what we want. And to understand when they first come to us is that they're valuable. You know, um, we don't we we pride ourselves on not judging young people before they come through our doors. We we tell them within the first couple of, of uh, minutes that they're with us that we are impressed with who they bring to the table. Mm. Uh, we, we have no pre- preconceived notions. It doesn't matter how you are uh, referred to the program. It doesn't matter uh, what you choose to share to the program. We are going to judge you on the merits of how you show up every day. And we also want you to understand that this is a space where you have a freedom to fail, mm. you know, and a lot of young people, especially potentially specifically people of color don't have that, you know, uh, they, they deal in, in absolutes, uh, not, not because that's their choices, but because those are the, uh, um, those are, those are the, the issues that happen to young people of color, uh, when, when they, they, they have infractions or, or issues or whether they, they don't necessarily, uh, meet quote unquote societal expectation. Yeah. It sounds like you're giving them a clean slate. And that's kind of like then that's how you're looking at them. Right. Blank canvas, right? So from there, how like and the reason why I want to go through this is I feel like everybody who's listening to this, a lot of us, um, I mean this let's face it, the restaurant industry employs a lot of challenged people um, that might not be suitable for other career paths. So, right. You know, this is, you know, a lot of people come from or who are in jail, maybe get out of jail and then end up working in the restaurant industry. And I feel like we, regardless of whether or not we're nonprofit, we can listen to what you're saying and have this perspective that you're giving us and how we should be treating these people regardless of their background and how to see something in them, some value in them to make them feel like they aren't whatever their history is. You know what I'm saying? No, exactly. So I, there's no secret that we chose the restaurant industry as, a, as an opportunity. I mean, food and tradition, uh, you know, at the heart of the culture of the city of new Orleans, but also as far as, uh, low hanging food and job opportunities for young people who had a criminal record, restaurants was an easy fit. Yeah. Uh, the problem was, uh, 
that those environments aren't always the best, mm. you know, specifically with people who have been in traumatic situations. And that's what it really boils down to, right? The population that we serve, they deal with a lot of trauma and it's, it's all based out of uh, systemic disparities that they encounter every day, whether it be education, housing, uh, racism, um, in the judicial system, you know, it treats young people of color differently, more harsh. There, there are much more repercussions. Um, so, uh, in this space, we wanted to, like you said, want to, to come in and say, Hey, 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 try to shed as much of that outside. We know it's going to take time. Uh, just know that from day one, we trust you. We love you. We're, we have no intention other than just to support you in finding out who is the best version of you. Yeah. And, uh, we, we also, the biggest thing is we understand you are not going to figure this out on day one. Yeah. So we have to have the responsibility up front to say, hey, you know what? This is not going to be easy. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be challenging because we don't, people don't actively self-destruct or uh, get in their own way. It's just not something that happens. It's, 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 a, it's a trait that's inherent because, because of, um, again, a lot of systemic barriers that existed before they came to us and became this 20-year person or this 21-year-old person before they came to us. So trying to act against all of that, there's a lot of conditioning that has to be broken down. So the first thing you're doing is you're saying to you know yourselves and to them, like this person, regardless of their history, their background, whatever, whatever they are, whoever they are, they have a clean slate, and we, we, we recognize them for their value and we love them is number one. And number two that I'm picking from your story is that you need to have the conversation with yourself that if they fail, it's not because of them. It's because of us and that this is going to take time and we need to create the, the framework, the, the system to make sure we, that they don't fail. What does that look like? What does that system look like? Cause I feel like this, even this is something that we can be taking and applying into our for profit. Yeah. This mentality of it's our job to make them, our, our people, our employees successful. Right. And I, and I don't want to take the onus completely off young people to say that like if they fail, it's, it's completely on us. But I, I will say this, this much of it is that they don't succeed without us. You know, they bring they bring everything to the table. Uh, we just we just have to help them. Do me a favor and pull that mic just right oh, close sorry. to your face. No, you're doing great. So continue your train. Yeah. Sorry. It's, it's, um, so they, they, they they're not, as I mentioned earlier, they don't come set up to fail with this desire to fail. And, and it's as much on them as it is on us like we also have a saying too we can't want it more than you but we've got to want it for that individual when they come in that's the difference and something that we do inspire with a lot of our restaurant partners when they're when they're in their hiring it's like what are you trying to hire for right are you just hiring for the mechanics of this cog uh this machine or are you are you trying to hire leadership are you yeah. trying to hire uh, potential supervisors are you trying to support your employers in a way that you wish that you had been supported when you got hired are you resonating in that space with an employer mm. uh, and for us that's how we look at our young people it's like when you come to our program we know the deficits we know that already and, and and they're not deficits that these young people created for themselves they're a lot of times born into it and again like i said i cannot speak enough on systemic racism you know that exists as a, as a, as a barrier to a lot of young people being given the same opportunities to excel you know, the, the limited scholarship opportunities is the, the housing market. We already know is, is, is got its own is riddled with its own uh, yeah. issues around redlining and racism and, and who gets to who gets to stay where and all that other stuff. But there's so many limitations on communities of communities of color that people are, are just in survival mode. You know, that they, they, they weigh right and wrong with needing to eat, needing to sleep, needing to live. And, and I think sometimes it kind of blurs the lines, you know. Because, this is, again, a survival mechanism. Yeah. So what we try to do is pull that apart 
and we try to say, okay, well, what does the survival look like for you? You know, uh, a lot of times we meet our young people, especially if they've been in, in any type of uh, juvenile system or criminal system. We say, well, what got you to that point, right? It's like nobody wants to be a, a career car thief. There's, mm-hmm. there's nobody's taking those resumes. You don't put that out. You know, you don't you don't grow up on this. I want to be the best car thief there is. You know, uh, guys understand that there's a quick turnaround. They can feed their families. They keep their lights on. You know, they're not buying flashy clothes. They're trying mm-hmm. to. F- feed themselves and their family and i I think we have to pull that away i said and then look at extrapolate exactly what is at the essence of that so you 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 like to sell you know yeah uh you have a head for money you have a responsibility to your family you know what you need to do these are the same things that i come to work with only i I wear a suit and tie when i do it so what's the difference and and i think that's the framework or the change of framework we try to have with our young people is like hey you have the skills you have all of them unfortunately somewhere along the line brought you into the wrong tribe, mm. you know, and, and, and taught you how to use those things to feed the wrong wolf. Yes. We want you in this tribe. We, wanna, we don't want to take or change who you are. And I think that happens a lot, too, in, in this capitalistic structure, of not just restaurants, but just for-profit business as a whole. Is they want to they file people down until they, they meet these square, square holes. And I think what we try to do is we try to resonate with the skill sets that young people bring to the table. Yeah. We don't necessarily plug them into restaurants, but we we look at how the different facets of working in a restaurant can fuel uh, a person to be more self-sustainable in the job field. Yeah, and like what shape is that person? And instead of trying to fit them and shave them into a shape, why don't we find the right shape for them? Exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and that doesn't happen a lot. No, in, and, in, and in one of the things room. I pulled from your story, one of the things I, I love is it sound, and it sounds like I'm assuming that when people go through your your one year system, you're helping them onboard to other restaurants in the city. Is that how? It- that is correct. That's the final piece. We have a career specialist uh, whose job is to help and maintain uh, where uh, our young people are. Um, I don't I don't like to use the term rated because we don't rate young people, but we try to assess for their skill levels. Like uh, we don't have a pass fail model here. If somebody comes in at say a a zero level of experience and aptitude for this type of work and graduates at a three, well, there's this on us to try to place them somewhere that can nurture a three. If somebody gotcha. comes in at a three with some experience and, and gradually gravitates to a five when they leave here, then it's our responsibility to put them on the track to a five success. So, But, but what I love about that idea of when you're finding a new uh, pop, opportunity for this individual you aren't just looking for people who are looking to fill like like you said a cog in the wheel like a, right like, like hey like we have an obligation to help this person grow right, right. and a, you as an owner have an obligation to help this person grow and i think that's where we, we forget as owners that we have an opera like we, it should be our personal goal that everyone we hire we should try to push out of our restaurant because we mm-hmm. should be trying to exactly what you do here develop right right you're not just having them put mayonnaise on the bread and pass it to the next person like it goes beyond that like you're giving them skills on how to manage their money how to manage their finances i'm sure that probably comes up to you you're teaching them yep. how to be adults right right um and i think that the owner needs to have that mentality like when you have a young person come work for you like you should like if if they're with you for three years they should know how to run a restaurant in my opinion right and that's the mentality i think owners need to have not every kid's going to want to have that mentality but for those who do want to take on that ambition that option should be there for them don't you agree i i agree completely i think that you could you should look at every employee as how they can be an investment in the work that you do as opposed to just filling the void Mm. and and i know I think that 
and we do work with restaurant partners that do share that. Like I said, we don't just we don't just blindly uh, partner ourselves at restaurants uh, across the city. We definitely uh, have cultured um, a catalog of employer partners who get that they want to do better and they want to be better and they do observe and, and borrow a lot from our model as a nonprofit and try to adapt it into so, what they do. So that's what I want to get into. Like what can we learn and absorb from your model that we could apply in our for-profit business that would serve us? What are the things that you do at Liberty's kitchen that is unique to a nonprofit that all businesses should be doing? I think paying close attention to uh, there's there's a uh, I went to a conference a few years ago and one of the things that resonated it was a youth conference uh, about uh, young people speaking out about you know capitalism and an unfair job market and all this other thing and all these great things and the young lady said on on the, on the stage um, people don't quit jobs they quit people mm. and that has always resonated with me because I know every job that I've ever quit it, it wasn't like man I hate Burger King it wasn't you know it wasn't I hate Burger King I hate Rudy, who managed Burger King, because he was a jerk, right? Yeah. And, 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 and any other job I may have left. Um, but I think that resonates with everybody. It's, it's, you have to look at people as people. And I know that's not a very profound statement, but I think some people, they miss that, you know, in, in the, the hurry-up offense that is capitalism, right? It's, it's like, oh, I got to hire. This is the position. I need a dishwasher. Yeah, I need to just hire pulses. somebody, and I need to just not be worried about them. Mm-hmm. And and. The truth of the matter is that person is not going to remain your dishwasher forever. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be hiring again at that space. But that guy's just going to leave you. And what did, what did you get from it other than just going back in and, and having to hire that, that spot? And how is that valuable to you in your time? What, what did you do? It seems to me that if you if you sat down with a person and you hired them and you looked at them for the potential that they could bring to your organization, it would inspire you, especially if you owned it or you led and you led from it. This organization has changed because of the people who have been hired by it, uh, through it. You know, Janet's vision evolved. Her predecessor, David Eamon's uh, vision of what this space became evolved based on the people who were hired. My vision, you know, CEO, I had my own vision of what I wanted to do in this space. But because we hired different people, we hired energetic people, people who invested in this work, people who uh, had the opportunity to, to, to bring something valuable to the table and grow from that. It changed the narrative of the space. And I think that if people were just more open to hiring and investing in the in the person instead of the the application, that they would learn a lot more from their employees. Um, if people are leaving or quitting you, maybe ask the question, is it that person? Or should I reflect on maybe my hours are too harsh or my expectations are too high or my wages are too low? Or uh, why did these last three people quit me? I think a lot of managers generally say they're just not cut out for this work. This work is hard. And I don't think that's fair. I think what you really have to look at is like, what can you change to make it easier or not easier, but uh, relatively fairer for your employer network so that they stay with you and they feel, you know, empowered to want to do what's best for your organization. If you treat a person with value, they will invest back into you. I, I've always resonated with that, and I think that that's true about what we what we try to exercise here at Liberty's Kitchen, not just with our youth, but with our staff. You know, we have, be open to hearing from your staff, and I don't think a lot of management currently is no. open, especially in the restaurant business, about what their staff needs. And I think at that simple simple 
conversation or that that two-way uh, dialogue could take place, so many more restaurants would be the better for it. What's the, the secret to opening up that dialogue, to starting the conversation? Well, I've also you know, recognize this in my, in my years of working in, you know, restaurants and, and hospitality. There's a lot of ego in this space. Yeah. There's also a lot of inherent bias and, and, and there's also a lot of racism. You know, um, these, these things have a history of having white leadership, white ownership, very male dominated spaces. And, uh, you know, because of the creative aspect of it or the, uh, that moniker, there's a lot of ego and bravado that comes in that space. And I think you have to humble yourself. To say, is this a, this space is not about me. This space is a, about who who you're serving. You know, is it is it your customer base? Is it your staff? Is it is it your stakeholders? It should be all of the above. But again, you have to go to a self-respective place of humbling yourself to be like, okay, if I'm serving the needs of all of these people, I need to show up in the best way possible to support those entities as opposed to being controlling or combative or just thinking that my way is going to work. Yeah. Um and just just simply opening up this saying, hey, just so you know, this is an open like dialogue. Like I'm mm-hmm. interested in you. I want you to feel like you can come to me with your challenges. If you ever have a challenge, you, open door policy, like you can say something. Just even giving people the green light is sometimes all it takes. But the other thing I love from how you're explaining this is you mentioned earlier just taking an interest in somebody, like l- becoming interested in them and who they are. And right. sometimes you have people on your team, they have all these hobbies and skills that you ne- that they never bring to the table because you never opened up the dialogue. You never right. knew that they were a graphic designer or had great photography skills or like doing I don't know what's another hat hint. What's the, the calligraphy? Like, right. you know what I mean? You never know who's on your team. You don't know what value you have unless you start pulling back the layers. Yeah. I mean, some people really enjoy organizing and yeah. some people like, you know, one of the things I do resonate with people who generally work in restaurants, maybe not who own them, but work in restaurants. Uh, they, they like the opportunity or idea around advocacy and, yeah. and how food and food justice relate to advocacy. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take anything for, you know, you to allow, your team to tell you, hey, can we do this? Uh, cook, cook, uh, cook a meal and, and and provide it free to whatever this program or, or whatnot. Or um, if your if your staff has an idea how uh, uh, to build camaraderie among the team, but you're not familiar with it, you're not used to. It, hey, maybe listen and let them lead a meeting about it. You know, it, it costs nothing sometimes to really just give people space uh, to show you who they are. You know. I think a lot of times um, in, in, in any industry, but we can, we can stick with restaurants. Um, one, of, one of the things that hold, hold back is that there's this template of how things are done. And, and it's this, this is uh, how it's done. And it's how it's always been done. And that's how it's going to continue to be done. Because uh, I, I, I came through fire and brimstone in the hell's kitchen and uh, that's the way I was trained. So that's the way I'm going to train. This is my time now. Now, now you're going to get it. And I'm like, yeah, but did you like that? Mm. You know, what was that experience like for you? And if you could have done it differently, how would you have? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how would it have resonated with you now if, if you wanted to change some of those things so you didn't feel like it was an abusive situation and it was more of a, uh, a commitment to you being able to uh, uh, evolve in that mm-hmm. space? And I, I don't I don't. And it's just weird to say that, too, because you think in, in a cooking people will be naturally inherent to producing uh, uh, a staff that was interested in evolution because yeah. cooking is, is constant evolution and, and marketing and management and restaurants, you know, restaurants change their look and their style all the time. Yeah. And it's like, 
but behind closed doors, it, sometimes they're some of the most r- rigidly run organizations only because, to your earlier point, nobody's told them it could be different. Right. And the, the, the dialogue was never open. The opportunity right. was never given. Right. Um, I love it, man. Uh, anything we haven't discussed up to this point that you think is necessary for us to discuss in our time together? I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the, what's happening across the board, you know, with with uh, <laughs> COVID and racism. You know, people yeah. like to talk about these things like they're, they're things that are impacting the world on a separate level, but they're really not. You know, um, you know, COVID, if anything, just exposed a lot about systemic racism that I think ignited a lot of the conversations or the riots or the uh, or the, the things that we've been seeing. You know, when COVID happened, the groups that were hit hardest were those that were in uh, poor or lower economic communities. And we all know the majority of those, uh, not the majority of those, but a lot of the people um, were people of color who are experiencing these things disparately, diff- disparately differently because of lack of access to supports. Um, by no means do I think that only, you know, black people or people of color are poor or, or uh, disenfranchised or unsupported. But we do know that when things like COVID happen, it affects these communities at such a higher percentage proportionally than it does uh, white communities. And that's just honest. So COVID flared that up, you know, as people were looking for unemployment, uh, welfare, support, jobs. The first people to go were probably people on the bottom rungs or the mid-level rungs. And in hotels and hospitality, a lot of times that, those are the people of color. Also they hospitals, don't get allowed to too. Be. Across the board. Yeah. I mean, you can hire them across the board, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Again, back to the conversation about institutional systemic racism, black people have to do so much more to advance a lot of times in uh, positions of authority and ownership. I mean, it was a... I didn't realize when I got the job as CEO how important that was here because I felt good because for me it was a 10-year journey. You know, I was like, I've always wanted to kind of be in, in control of the space because I love it so much, you know, and, and Janet is still a very – I talked to her today, as a matter of fact. You know, she's still a very good friend of mine and counsel and, and a mentor when I need her to be. Um, but I was excited, and everybody's congratulating me when I got the job and I announced it. And, and it was like, wow, this is great. I finally made it. I'm CEO, everybody. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. And so it's so glad to see a, a, a young person, well, a person of color uh, at the reins of something uh, around specifically working with younger people of color and in community and, and, and also managing a, a, a business and, and something that's, that's uh, you know, got a pretty significant footprint in the city of New Orleans. And I was like, it never dawned on me about the personal color angle and why that was a big deal. When I look around, so many outlets because there's so few many of us, which is crazy in a community like New Orleans, which is majority African-American, that there's so few, so few of us at the table making leadership decisions or, or, or at the table being able to advocate in spaces that can make significant differences. Uh, so I was like, man, this is, this is incredible. So it changed how I viewed not so much what I was going to do in a role, but again, like I mentioned, that self-reflective piece, it became another layer of my decision-making. It, came, it became another layer of the work that I was doing. I was doing it inherently, but by, I just became more conscious of it. You know, as, a, as an African-American leader, what is my responsibility in this role um, to make sure that I'm putting that foot forward on, on top of so many other things? But I was like, this is, this is, uh, this is impressive. So, going back to say not a lot of people of color are having that opportunity. They're not for different reasons or other, because there's so much white ownership 
uh, especially like I said, the white male ownership of a lot of commercially capitalistic institutions, all of it. Government doesn't allow for a lot of opportunity for people of color to have the same level of advancement without more challenges or more obstacles in their way. So uh, what we want to do is we want to try to create space to give young people of color more voice, uh, make sure that they, they have access to information. Again, like I said, they come to us with all the knowledge. We don't make young people better. We provide young people with the opportunities that they've been withheld through systems so that they can adapt and evolve. And those are the things we talk to our employer partners about. It's like, what trainings do you have? Uh, what, what access to opportunities do you have? If you don't, if you don't have people who are excelling to, I guess, your degree of what they should be, whose fault is that? At what point do you take ownership for people not being able to get to work on time? Because there are places outside of here that understand that the, you know, local transit uh, opportunities are lackluster to say the least. When you got a guy or a young lady coming two and three hours to work on a bus and have to wake up at like four in the morning to make an 8 a.m. or 8 o'clock shift or 7 o'clock shift and you fire them because they're late, they're not driving the bus. Yeah. You know, and, and nine times out of ten, they don't want to hear when a bus is late because they don't want to get involved in it. It's like, I just need I just need you here. I need you where you need it to be. We've lost so many young people just because of the bus system mm. having having losing their jobs. And my explanation to them has always been uh, uh, when we talk back to managers or supervisors of restaurants, it's like, did you talk to the young person? Did you find out what was happening? It's like, yeah, it was just an inconsistency thing. And I'm like, okay, how, how often are you firing people for today? Oh, that's our number one reason why we can't keep people employed. Like, yeah, are they lazy or is there a problem with transportation? And maybe that's where you should put your advocacy weight or maybe you should be speaking to the city about this or maybe you should provide a bus service because you're probably losing yeah. some incredible personnel because they're having a challenge with transportation, which is a very real and legitimate challenge. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's perspective, man. It's all about just seeing things from different angles and, and trying to understand. I think that's the big right. takeaway is just trying to understand and see perspective. And, um, and I mean, I think what you guys are doing here is an incredible thing. I think that more business owners need to adopt this social responsibility. It's not about just the bottom line and how rich I can get. It's about the influence I have on the next generation and setting them up to you know, my predecessors, you know? Right. Um, and, and I just love that mentality. Um, and one question I've been asking all my guests, I, our mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry uh, by sharing this information, sharing this perspective, sharing these values. How have you transformed over the past eight years, your time here? Uh, I think myself, um, my, my transformation is, is uh, I think to be, I mean, you kind of, th- took the wind, the wind out of my response. But I think the best leaders are those who are not imposing leadership but making the way to create new leaders. I think yes. that's, that's the best space to be in. I think more leaders, I've learned in my time here to speak less and, and listen more. I've also come to understand that I wasn't born CEO. I had to, I had to, I had to go through several steps to get here which means I probably have several steps in this space as well. And it goes back to that humility conversation yeah. I have. I have open door. You know, you can come talk to me. One of the basic questions I ask on any one-on-one check-in I have with any employer, any staff member I have in the organization, there's never a meeting that I leave with any of my staff members or any of the young people that I meet with that I don't ask always two questions. 
um, how am I doing and you know, um, what can I get you that you need as far as support? What am I not getting you that you need as far as support? And how am I showing up as a leader for you? Mm. You know, those two things are very important. I think for anybody who's in a, in a, in a level of uh, authority, not authority, I don't like that word, uh, responsibility. but responsibility yes. uh, for, for success of everybody's opportunities in this space. I can't do that in a vacuum. So if, if I'm, if I'm missing something and somebody needs support and, they don't know how to ask for it because they may not know they can ask for it. That's when I have to create the space because if it, it turns out that they had an opportunity to do something differently that could have advanced them or evolved the company or made us all a, a better place as a result, then it's on me as a leader because I didn't create that space, not because they didn't have the quote unquote initiative uh, to speak up. Uh, you know, so I think I think for me the way I've changed the most is listening more and creating more space for people to be dynamic people to to be authentic and yeah. people to be transparent yeah. and this is something uh usually i go straight into the speed round at this point but it's something i realized that didn't come up in today's conversation it should have this idea of if somebody's listening to this right now and they want the the idea of a nonprofit resonates with them maybe they don't want to do a for-profit restaurant there's a lot of people out there that are interested in nonprofits right now what is the secret to a successful nonprofit? Like what, what's one piece of advice you'd give somebody who wants to get into a nonprofit sector? I would definitely say don't run it like a mom and pop, you know, have a, have a, res, a respectable business plan, have, have an idea of, uh, of what you wanted to do in three years, just like any, any small business, you know, just say create a three to five year business model when you create anything. I think the same should be said for uh, a nonprofit. I think a lot of times people <clears throat> create nonprofits to address a need uh, without any resolution for how to, to, to get outside of it. Like our dream here at Liberty Kitchen is to work ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to have to exist. Uh, but that's going to take a plan and a strategy and it's going to take uh, communication and conversation. So I would say to start there, like what is, it, what, is it you are, what is it you know the world needs to change? How will your nonprofit support the change? And what do you want to see by the time you're done? Mm. You know, I think are the, the, three, the three bigger questions around why you do this work because for us that's what it is otherwise we would still be that small restaurant that just hired young people coming out of the system to get a second chance i mean now we are trying to be uh in multiple locations throughout the city now uh you're doing catering now like you've you're catering yeah we're no longer in the school systems but we're partnering now with a i think a larger longer farther reach around food access we're working with farmers in the community we're exposing young people to different jobs in food systems and food sectors. And again, we wouldn't be able to do that if people didn't bring these things up in conversation to yes. say, what if we did this? Or mm. we could make a bigger impact if this is what we were involved in. Those are going to be the most dangerous and powerful words out there. What if? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, um, but it, they can be so powerful by just asking the question, by, by turning on that frontal lobe, right? Um, yeah. Awesome stuff, man. Thank you so much. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two-thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers 
subscribers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To learn more, head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, get one month of free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000. One more time, that's toasttab.com slash unstoppable. You have to use that link to save $1,000. You hear me say it all the time on the show. This industry is all about relationships and people. But even though you might be geared towards relationships and people, you still need to know your numbers. And if numbers is not your thing, I got to tell you about this book, QuickBooks for Restaurants, a bookkeeping and accounting guide by Zach Weiner. This is the back office restaurant accounting guide you've been searching for. Zach Weiner covers accounting fundamentals, including sales tracking, purchasing, bill paying, invoicing, managing day-to-day liabilities, gift certificate tracking, cash management, detailed reporting, and so much more. Ultimately, Zach shows owners and operators how to create the accurate financials and reporting that will enable them to make better informed data-driven decisions. To learn more and to get Zach's book, head to zachweiner.com slash unstoppable. That's Z-A-C-W-E. I-N-E-R dot com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, if you use that link, you will save 50% off a one-on-one consulting call. Yeah, that's right. What are you waiting for? We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I think it's what I mentioned, that self-reflection. Yeah. What is your biggest weakness? (laughs) <laughs> my biggest weakness is delegation yeah why how are you dealing with that weakness over time i think early in the interview you asked me like what is the thing i think i most evolved in i think it's trusting my, my people and it's, it wasn't coming from a place of distrust let's, let's go back to that but um sometimes just that old attitude is like if you want it done right you got to do it yourself is, is unrealistic especially if you want to make a big impact you have to at some point trust that you made the right decision hiring who you did and you have to let them grow and evolve and again if freedom to fail is is, is a space where you can really evolve and become a better version of yourself you have to extend that to your staff yeah. what's one question you ask or thing you look for when you're bringing on new people to your your organization what do they care most about what are you looking for something that's not selfish to be quite honest mm. I mean, people can say music, people can say art, because uh, we usually elaborate what the follow-up to that is why. Like, you know, we, we try to ask people, like, what's important to you? And we're not looking for, you know, we're a little skeptical people who come in and say, I'm looking to advocate for black youth. It's like, okay, calm down. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm talking about you personally. Like, what do you care about? You know, yeah. it's like, so people say art, so people say food, so people say family, you know, and, and we want that to resonate in the space that's, as positive as possible, something we can grow, something that kind of meets within our, our value system of who we are as an organization. Um, I, I've said community like a million times in this thing, but it's important to us. We, yeah. we want people to understand the importance of the family sector, and that doesn't always just come uh, with those that share our bloodline. It's, mm-hmm. it's just about the people, again, we go back to who we formalize as our tribe. Yeah. What is your biggest challenge today? My biggest challenge today is, is uh, self-care. I'll be honest, as, as you know, this work is not 
I think I, I talked a lot through this interview where I made it seem like I had everything figured out, but the truth of the matter is you don't because nope. we deal in the commodity of human lives. You know, the restaurant, the nonprofit industry is a vehicle, as we mentioned earlier in the description of the work that we do. But at the end of the day, we're working with human beings and that's a volatile, ever changing experience. So, uh, you have to adapt, you know, you have to read, you have to, you have to communicate, you have to have conversations. It's, it's, it's a lot happening to try to make sure that, you know, even though we give our, young people an opportunity for freedom to fail that that's a that's a a more difficult space for us to be in as those who are providing the opportunity because when we fail uh it has much more detrimental consequences on the individuals we serve so i i am probably more involved in a lot of things than i should be again like i said uh, the delegation pieces is a problem for me i'm always involved and sometimes in too much and, and sometimes not enough so uh this work, because it means so much to me, can become all-encompassing, and yeah. i got to take a step back. I think that's something a lot of people in food and beverage in general, it's just that, that finding that balance that for that, that personal space or that personal self, uh, just giving some, some of you to yourself, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. so you can take care of yourself. Absolutely. It's very important. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Is this something that's common within the restaurant industry but not common – sorry, common within your four walls but not common throughout the industry? Uh, I would say we, we try to express, uh, I don't say a higher, a higher facet of customer service, but we want people to leave this place feeling like they had a good experience, Mm. not just with the food. We want them to meet, we want them to get a New Orleans experience, want them to have met somebody that, that resonated with them, had food that resonated with them, and then hopefully learn something about the mission of what their food purchased that resonated with them. Not so much from the comeback, because I assume... With all the restaurants all over New Orleans, that's, that's sometimes a variable. But I would like for everybody, at least we try to condition a culture in this space where when you leave this space, we want you to have the best experiences you could have. I love it. And what is one uncommon uh, code of conduct, a core value you teach your people? Interdependentness, that you can't do it on your own and that everybody has something valuable to say. You just have to take an opportunity to give them their space to say it. You know, one of the things that I hate and I shouldn't say hate because it's a strong word, but it, it rubs me the wrong way is when people say thing that this, the phrase uh, agree to disagree. Mm. Because that means you came to the conversation to change my opinion. And if you didn't, then you're done. Yeah. Which means you didn't hear what the other person was saying. So I hate when people say I would agree to disagree because I don't feel that that was really a space where there was, there was an open dialogue. So for, uh, for our, our, our staff, we try to, present a space where, hey, you know what? Nobody has the perfect answer. Somebody's answer may be a little bit righter than the others. And somebody who has a wrong answer needs to be informed of what the right answer should be. And that doesn't happen without the, the transparency of a, uh, a conversation. Yeah. So. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, uh, investing their time. I mean, just quite honestly. I mean, the number one thing we talk about restaurateurs is like that. I always have to turn people over and I'm like, yeah, you probably spend a lot of money rehiring, re-interviewing, uh, buying new uniforms. If you took that same fraction of time and actually invested in people to find solutions to some of the issues that would help you retain employees, it's not so much about becoming a social worker. It's just a, a better evaluation of investment and in, in how, yeah. you're, how you're talking to your staff. That's one thing we didn't get into today. I know it's supposed to be a speed round, but now I'm curious. Um, how many of your employees have you retained to, to stay that have come on to go through the program but choose to stay employed and help the next generation of youth? Well, they don't, they don't, we don't employ them here. Okay. Uh, we get them jobs outside of, of our restaurant. Okay. Uh, I mean, we have a few that have gone on to, to get jobs here. They just 
have been lucky in those spaces because everybody here is, is a trainer per se. Uh, they, they train, they've had uh, experience in, in years in the industry and the service. Uh, we do have a young lady right now, very proud of Joy Barconi, who's actually an employee of the program who works directly in our kitchen and is paying it forward and giving it back. I love it. Uh, but for the most part, most of our young people, because they have spent now four months with us in a super supportive environment, uh, we have to push them out of the nest if we want them to be able to grow and, and evolve. And hopefully they'll take what they've learned here and we're kind of planting little seeds of a different culture and different kitchens all over the, all over the city. Beautiful. Um, what is one service you've outsourced or hired to, to do something better? Data coordination. I'd, okay. I'd say that's probably a misstep of most nonprofits is they, they, they make a lot of decisions based on gut and feel uh, and I think opinions, but they don't really have data to really back up a lot of times some educated strategy or decision making for the organization and i know for us we've we've hired in-house for it and we've also like consulted it's it's important uh for us to know we're doing a good job and we're making a difference uh so for us i, I think data is incredible and i'm not just talking about like do the hamburger sell on the menu right yeah. i'm talking about like if we're losing Young people at a certain age demographic from this part of the city. Why is that? You know, yeah. or if we're if we're having more young women graduate than young, young more young men. Why is that? You know, those types of things that inform how you can be doing better is is, in my opinion, and what we I think what we've learned through an organization, correlated best by uh, calculating the data. And everybody has it right. You have that instinctively. It just happens. Yeah. But having somebody to come to you to tell you how to how to make it speak a language and tell you a story. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a skill set, and if you don't have it in house, I highly recommend that you look into either hiring it or or outsourcing. Is there a it. set of data for a nonprofit? Uh, I know you guys are a specific nonprofit, so mm-hmm. it doesn't apply to all nonprofits. But a, a area where a nonprofit should be looking regardless regarding data that they don't. Oh, it depends. I mean, if we're talking about nonprofit, I mean, most of these things are run in some type of start and finish. So you want to calculate like how many you start versus how many you finish. And your dad in, in, in the middle of that should tell you why. Okay. You know, that, that's, that's the most broadest sense of, of the framework. Uh, but the typical nonprofits have a completion rate of some type. And you want to try to get as best that you can. For us, we recognize that right now we're, we're at like um, a 75% completion rate, which sounds great. But if we were only in the business of status quo, we wouldn't ask ourselves the questions, right? Why What's going on with the other 25? Yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I know you, you can't be perfect, yeah. but we want to start the conversations about what's happening with the other 25. And a lot of it's mental health. A lot of it is, is poverty. A lot of it is, is, um, is housing and, and, and where they are in the city. And, and again, a lot of it is, is over, overwhelming racism. So. Mm. Uh, these are things that need to be challenged. Otherwise, the 25% will always exist, and the 75% that come to us needing to graduate will always always need us as well. And again, we want to work ourselves out of a job. Yeah. We don't want to just stay here to take advantage of this population. We want to learn from the population as we serve them how can we affect future generations so they don't have to need us. Mm. Yes. Um, so one more question, actually two more questions. What's mm-hmm. one technology you've adopted within the four walls of your operation that's had a huge impact? And usually I say your bottom line, but I don't know. I mean, is that just as important for a nonprofit? Yeah, yeah. So no, like, I, I can easily yeah. talk to that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things right now, we have a sales force uh, because this it takes so many people to help support. Again, back to my earlier quote about what's my favorite thing about, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. 
And I'm blessed to have uh, a strong supportive network of stakeholders and board and philanthropic partners who understand how important this work is, understand the need for this work. Um, Salesforce allows me to know exactly who's contributed, what they've contributed, how frequently they've contributed, and to appropriately thank these people. You know, you see people and, and you know they gave to you, and it's great to get this blanket hug when you see them every now and then. But Salesforce now has given me the opportunity to really personalize the space because the contributions and the generosity and the investments that we are lucky enough to garner in this work you know, I know people don't always give because they want that thank you, but I feel better now knowing that we have a record that we can give to our board to say, you know, well, how do we know we're doing a good job? I, we can say, well, the amount of people who gave to us this year increased by 35% and the amount of monies that they gave to us increased by 10%. So okay. people believe in what we're doing, you know, and it's, it's, it's so comfortable and so validating to be able to have that space as opposed to being able to say, well, we raised more money this year. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's not the same story. So Salesforce is essentially a customer relationship management it software. Is. I'm yeah. sorry, I should have no, explained you're, that. You're cool. Yeah. And, um, and customer relationship software is so important. I mean, that's what our, uh, that's what um, the names escape open table is. Or right. basically all that stuff, collecting data, information, relationship information about your guests. And, but it goes beyond your guests and it goes into your stakeholders, the people right. that are invested. And you have to track that information, that relationship information. It's so powerful. Uh, this is the last question. You ready for it? It's a doozy. So if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? I don't want to tell my kids all the time is trust your gut because there's something there. Yeah. You know, it's just, it may not always be the right answer, but trust your gut. If, if, it's, if it's bothering you, that it needs further investigation and, and, and don't don't ignore your gut ever. Yeah, uh, one. Yeah, I would also say that I don't believe anybody is inherently evil or or negative. I think that they've been built up to see or feel or resonate in a certain space, and I think that if they can be approached at the right decibel or level, that you can you can get somebody to see the uh, another perspective I, I refuse to believe that people don't can completely turn themselves off it just takes the right approach to get to that space that's two and um for me i think the, the last thing is you have to find something you love in this world uh to to exist in it uh whatever that may be it be maybe a person uh, a thing an action or a space but you have to find something that you love in this world because you will never be able to relate it or understand it if you can't find it within yourself. Yes, and that was three. Thank you so much, Dennis. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who do you respect and admire in this industry and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? It's funny. I had a different answer when you first asked me this question. But, you know, I I actually want to take it back to, to Joya Barconi, who I mentioned, who's actually on our staff, you know, um, just to give you a brief, brief history of who she is. When she came to us, she was a graduate of the program. Uh, she was a single mother. She had two kids. Um, and she was working. I can't remember if it was, if it was Burger King or McDonald's or somebody, but she didn't know what to do. She wanted to be a mother and she wanted to support her kids and she had her own ideas about her own menus. Flash, fast forward to now she's graduated. She's a mother. Um, she has three kids. I think she has three kids. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but she also runs a catering company. 
and she works here and she gives back to young people. And I think all too often we look for mentors as people who have age or establishment uh, and we give too much credit or, or merit to those who have, I don't know, lived and seen it. But to be honest, I, I, what I appreciate about what I've learned from young people is they're in it. Like they're in it right now. And I can't learn from somebody like myself or older than myself to help Joya understand what she's experiencing right now. And if I'm working with that population, which I am, she's a mentor. She's a mentor for what the future of not just young chefs, but young entrepreneurs or young people who just want to make a better way for themselves, find the opportunity to do. And cooking is now like a superpower for her where she can be a great mother for her kids and she can cook and she can do all these incredible things, but she can also use that to make money, to support her family, but she can also use that as an opportunity to train others who felt like her when she got here and say, hey, you know what? There's an opportunity here. Let me guide you through it. That was Joya. Joya Barconi. Joya, yes, look, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. <laughs> and uh, how can we connect with you if we maybe want to come join your team or maybe we know some people that could be a good fit for your team? What's the best way to connect? Uh, yeah, I mean, right now, the website, www.libertyskitchen.org, uh, we, we post everything on that thing. And then we have our, our Facebook presence, so which is Liberty's Kitchen New Orleans. And we have our Instagram presence, which is just Liberty's Kitchen. Uh, yeah. All of those things really resonate with kind of the pulse of what's happening in the, the hotel hospitality industry. Yeah. So we try to support our brothers and sisters in, in and, the And I industry. think every city needs a Liberty's Kitchen or something similar to it, right? Um I think so. Growth comes from within, right? If we're going to make a change, we got to we got to you know grab the bull by the horns and, and make it happen, right? Exactly. Um, so uh, my hat, tip my hat to you. Thank <laughs> you for the work you do. Uh, thank you for taking the time to share your no- your knowledge and your story. There is no question, Dennis. You are unstoppable. <laughs> thank you. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Thank you so much, Dennis Bagneris, for coming on and sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your story, your perspective, and opening up my eyes and my listeners' eyes to a lot of what's going on out there with systemic racism. And as somebody who grew up in New Hampshire, who didn't get a lot of exposure to uh, diversity and different perspective, my perspective, the lens I saw diversity it through is this lens of whatever I saw on TV, whatever I saw on on the internet or whatever I, I heard in music and um, you know, systemic racism, racism is, is, is omnipresent. It's around us everywhere. So much so that we're not even aware of it. And we really need to, to, to try extra hard to empathize and to understand where people are coming from, from who have, you know, diverse backgrounds and what they have to go through, uh, to, to get the same level of, um, results that people who are privileged get. And it's something that I'm asking you to be mindful of and something I'm going to be trying try to be better about here at Restaurant Unstoppable uh, is, is keeping all these things that we, we just aren't aware of because it's we're blind to it. Mo- the majority of people are blind to it. Um, and hopefully today's show helped us kind of become awake to uh, systemic racism and what's going on out there. Also, in today's chat, we really had a great conversation around, you know, this idea of feeding the wolf you want to become. I love that idea of, you know, we have this choice and whatever we feed, whatever energy, whatever uh, influences we we surround ourselves with, with is what we're going to become. So be mindful of that. And I also really loved this idea of not trying to squeeze round pegs into square holes and really putting people in their strengths, um, customizing 
your your plan for them, making it specific for the person. I love that idea too. So before I let you guys go, I want to remind you that starting in August, we're going to start getting way more intentional with our content. We're going to be going through the people who've had the biggest influence on me. If I was opening a restaurant tomorrow, these are the people I would go to for the specific advice they're going to give us. And we have Ari Weinswag coming on to talk about visioning and anarchism in our business, believe it or not. Uh, Then we also have uh, Tom Walter coming later in the month to talk about the core values and how to get your people to buy into core values. And then we have our good friend, Chris Schultz coming back on the show for, I think a third or fourth time to talk about, we're not quite sure yet actually what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be centered around culture. The first month, August is going to be centered around culture and every month going forward, we're going to have a theme and we're going to have deep dive conversations, uh, touching these themes. And, um, if you guys want to join these conversations, like literally live workshops, that will be turned into these episodes. And if you want to ask your questions to my guests, then what you got to do is join our community. Head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com right now. And when you get over there, come, come join the community. Come be a part of the conversation. Here's the thing. Starting in August is when we're doing all these live workshops. And if you want to be a part of the conversation, you got to get signed up before them. So um, that's that. So what are you waiting for? Head over there. Again, it's restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Join the community. Be a part of the conversation. And we'll see you there. Until next time, peace out.